0: So yeah, um, I don't know how privileged you are, but it's certainly a privilege for me to be here as much as I can with you. It's brilliant to be able to to teach people on such a consistent basis, and uh, that is is a fabulous privilege which uh, I hope I will never take for granted. Anyhow, we're going to move on in our our study of Philippians tonight, and uh, we're going to be looking at just a few verses from chapter two. It's just a very short passage, but it's quite uh, um, an interesting one. Coming where it does, in the middle of the book. Anyway, let's read the verses in then we see. You've just been through the advice that, uh, that Paul has given, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault. And uh, then suddenly, having talked about all of that, Paul changes tone a little bit in verse 19. and That's what we've got tonight. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered. I receive news about you I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare for everyone look for his own interests not those of Jesus Christ but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he's served with me in the work of the gospel I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Well, that's our passage tonight. (coughs) And, uh, of course, it's mainly about the two of Paul's associates, Epaphroditus and Timothy, and about Paul's plans. And that sometimes perplexes people a little bit. Excuse me, I'll just move this around a bit. And uh, they, they, they sort of think like this. Okay, so Paul started Philippians by saying how he was doing. He's done that bit. He's told them all about the fact that he's in prison, but they shouldn't worry about him because the gospel is still going forward. And uh, he's, he's doing okay for the moment. And then he told them after that how they ought to live, and to live as citizens of heaven. And of course that word citizens is an important word in Philippians because Philippi was a place where so many ex-soldiers from the 28th Legion had been given citizenship. And so it was very proud of its Roman status, the city of Philippi. And it's interesting, isn't it? You will have noticed this, that as we go through Philippians, there are not very many Old Testament quotations, which you always do get in Paul's letters usually, when there are lots of Jews involved. <laughs> but there weren't many Jewish people in Philippi. You remember when Paul went to Philippi to start with in Acts, there wasn't even a synagogue. There was a place where they met down by the river. And it may have been some kind of building, we don't know, but it wasn't a proper synagogue and most of the people in, in uh, uh, Philippi who had anything to do with Judaism in those days seemed to be female, people like Lydia. And uh, that being the case, um, uh, the men who came into the church were probably pretty much Gentiles. Oh, they knew a bit about the Old Testament, certainly, but they didn't know it as the Jews did. And so Paul is, is talking to a church where uh, people uh, are proud of being citizens of Rome and probably don't have a Jewish background at all. So he's done that and then you get the great hymn which you you dealt with before uh, in chapter 2 about what Jesus was like where Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and then you get those fantastic verses which may be from a hymn that they used to sing in the church in Philippi or maybe something that Paul has composed himself but it's obviously the central point of the whole letter isn't it? The language is more careful, more studied, more balanced than anywhere else and Paul clearly wants this vision of who Jesus is right at the heart of what he's saying to the Philippians. So the, the question really is on the back of all of that, if that's what's happened in the book so far, why all this boring stuff now about who's travelling where? Why does Paul suddenly go into this travelogue and uh, Uh, Lots of scholars have said in the past, you know, it's the kind of stuff that he normally says at the end of the book when he's wrapping up with some personal notes. And that is proof that Philippians is two or three different letters of Paul's jammed together and not very expertly joined as well. In fact, if you look at Wikipedia, I noticed this afternoon, in their article on Philippians, they make that point. Most scholars agree that this is not a real letter. It's actually jammed together from bits of things that Paul wrote at different points. Well, they're out of date because for the last 20 years at least, most scholars have agreed, some of them very reluctantly, this is one letter, the whole thing. The, the, the vocabulary of it is the same from start to finish. There are some words that are very important that are repeated again and again, and there is no difference in what he writes in chapters 3 and 4 from what he writes in chapters 1 and 2. So the idea that you know the, this bit in chapter 2 is where he's winding to an end of the first letter and then somebody's jammed on the rest of it very inexpertly, that just doesn't hold any water at all. But uh, why is he putting this in here? Well, I think it's for a very good reason. What he wants to do really is train the Philippians. Train them in expressing the love of Christ. And I think the best training always involves three steps. He wants to train them to live in the love of Christ, because we can never learn enough about that, but also because that's what shows the world outside who we actually are. Um, right, he was saying that the uh, love divine, all loves excelling, wasn't really about the love that he and his wife share. It's about the love of Jesus. But actually, it was about that too, wasn't it? Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling. The love that characterizes the truth that he pours into our heart through the sacrificial death of Jesus and uh, finish then thy new creation pure and spotless may we be changed from glory into glory it's all about isn't it the love of god becoming a present reality in us and what paul's burning for for the philippians i want everybody out there when you think about christians not to think about Eodius and Syntyche quarreling and not speaking to one another I want them to see that you will give your lives for one another, that you'll have the same sacrificial kind of care for one another that Jesus had for us when he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, and came down here to die on the cross. <laughs> and so it's often been noticed that some of the words that are used in that great hymn about Jesus are also used in these verses. For example, when he talks about Epaphroditus almost dying, being at the point of death. He uses exactly the same Greek phrase that he used about Jesus just a few verses before. And clearly he's making connections. When he talks about Jesus taking on the form of a servant, the word he uses for servant is the very word he uses for Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so there are all of those connections uh, between those bits. And this is not something that... irrelevant or in the wrong place or being dropped in it's there because it's part of the training program what do i mean by three steps in training well i think i've been through lots of different training uh, sessions and in, in all kinds of things i was a football coach at one time <laughs> i also had uh, as chaplain at school to do sort of training in how you deal with people who are cutting themselves how you handle fire extinguishers how you use a fibrillator all of those kinds of things and there are always three steps the first one is to watch as an expert does it You've got to get the idea, haven't you, somebody that really knows what he's doing or she's doing. And that's not enough. You've got to understand what they're doing, so the next step is learning the basic principles behind it. At this point, you produce your notepad and you write some stuff down. You've got to understand the principles, otherwise just imitating what you've seen somebody do won't really cut it. It won't really make it work out. And then there's a third step. The third step is you've got to try it out for yourself. You've got to go into action and uh, actually make sure that you can do it. It's not enough just to write down the notes and think, right, that is what I will do if if, if I'm ever in this situation. No, you've got to try it. I remember when we did our fire extinguisher training that uh, we were sitting in a classroom writing down things about the three different forms of fire extinguishers and the different kinds of fire that they can, they can cope with and how you get them to actually work and uh, all the rest of that kind of thing and how often they should be checked. And we'd written this down. And then they took us outside where they'd set up some of their equipment outside and they deliberately started fires of different kinds. You have this thing blazing in front of you. Then they'd hand you an, an extinguisher and say, is this the right one for the job? If you think it is, use it oh, I could die here, oh. But you have to try it out because if the first time you have to use a fire extinguisher is when there is a real inferno blazing around you, you're not likely to do it right unless you've tried it out. And what Paul is doing here, it seems to me, in these verses that we're looking at tonight, is giving the Philippians a chance to put into practice what they've just been hearing about. He's pointing to two broad examples epaphroditus and timothy whom they are going to come into contact with very soon and he's saying All right, here's your chance you practice it so i suppose the way the three steps work out uh in this chapter is first of all you've got the great hymn about jesus the fantastic example the superlative example of self-giving love and he says your attitude should be the same as christ jesus now watch him see what he did and having seen that example You then have to learn the principles. And so you've got the next lot of verses uh, um, where he talks about how you make it work. And that's things like, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Uh, uh, You've got to be blameless and pure, and and so on and so forth. And then, having done that, now let's have a go. (laughs) Here are Timothy. I'm sending him to you. Epaphroditus is coming home. Honour and respect people like him because of what they've done. Let's see this love that we've been talking about in practical action in you, because they are pretty good at it themselves. So, what's the story behind all this? Well, let's look at the story of Timothy first. You, you know the background of Timothy lately, but let's just rehearse it together. First of all, he came from either Lystra or Derby, those two towns that are close together that Paul went through, and he was half-Jewish. His mother and his grandmother became Christians quite early from a Jewish background, but his father, pretty clearly, was a Greek. And we don't know anything about his father, really. There was possibly a father gap in his life. He never maybe felt too close to his father because he certainly gravitated to the Apostle Paul, who never had any kids. And this father son relationship is something that Paul uh, held very dear, and probably Timothy too. And Paul refers to it, obviously, here in these verses like a son with a father. He served with me in the work of the gospel. And clearly both had a gap in their lives uh, uh, filled filled by being together. He probably came across Paul when he was a young boy, because the first time that that Paul came to those two towns, first of all, he did a wonderful work of healing. And then second, he was almost stoned to death. He was left for death, for dead. And the disciples gathered around him. And that might have included a very young Timothy. We just, just don't know. And clearly he had seen and heard enough of the Apostle Paul and admired his bravery and thought, I want to be like him. That when Paul came back through uh, his town on his second missionary journey, he was ready. And Paul could see there a young man who'd learned from his example in the past, who'd grown up as a Christian, and who was now ready for a bit more. And so Paul and Silas took Timothy on board, and on he went with them to Macedonia. That was probably his first encounter with Philippi. And so it was probably one of the first places where he'd seen God really move through Paul's ministry. He was there when Paul had the the vision in the night where a man in Macedonian clothes said, come across and help us. He was there when they sailed that short gap across to Europe, not knowing what was going to happen. And he was there when things started to happen in Philippi. How long he was there, we just don't know, because his name drops out of the story, and it's Paul and Silas who are in prison singing hymns in the middle of the night. But he was around, and that was the start of Christian ministry for him. He was naturally timid, it seems. He was somebody who had stomach problems quite a bit, and Paul refers to those once or twice, doesn't he, in his many afflictions. There are lots of things that Timothy always had wrong with him. He spent more time in the doctor's surgery than most people in the New Testament. And Paul tells him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. So it seems to have been a stomach-related complaint. He was also naturally shy. And Paul sends him to Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, please, give, give Timothy a break. Be good to him, because, you know, he won't push himself forward. And you could make him feel very scared indeed, you, you, you uh, pushy, assertive Corinthians. So uh, give him a chance. He became Paul's son in Christian work, probably went to Philippi. We heard about that. At the time of writing, he was with the imprisoned apostle Paul. He was with Paul, looking after him, being with him, giving him support, and that meant an immeasurable amount to Paul. He was also co-author of six of Paul's letters. Six of the letters that Paul wrote have Timothy. As one of the people responsible. So he and Paul clearly worked very, very, very closely together, and had a lot to do with one another. How about Epaphroditus? Well, not quite so much. <laughs> and he wasn't at all Jewish, didn't have any Jewish blood, as far as we know. Uh, that's suggested by his name, which is a kind of name that was very common in a Roman place like Philippi. Epaphroditus. Um, It was probably of pagan origin, like most people in, in, in Philippi. And when you look at his name, what it means is lovely and charming, but it means that because that was what the goddess Aphrodite was supposed to be like, and his name really means from Aphrodite. So if Aphrodite was a vision of loveliness, then... Epaphroditus was supposed to behave in a lovely fashion as well as I say it was quite a common name and so common that most people didn't think of Aphrodite being behind it but he's named after a pagan goddess all the same and that is really interesting the goddess of pagan love now God uh, God picks him up and changes his life and he becomes for Paul an example of what Christ's love looks like in action what else do we know about Epaphroditus? Well, he was sent by the Philippian church to bring a gift to Paul. They had heard he was in prison. Where he was in prison, One said, sure, it might have been Ephesus, or more likely it's towards the end of his life in Rome, which is quite a tricky journey for Epaphroditus to negotiate. And on the way, he's, he's felt ill. And uh, by the time he gets to Rome, he's almost at the point of death. And he can't do the job he was sent for, which was to, to look after the apostle Paul in Boston. News has got back to Philippi. He is unwell, and he's bothered about that. We don't know how the news got back to Philippi, but many scholars point out that if you really did bring a sizable gift for the Apostle Paul in the ancient world where there was no security corps, <laughs> you would not send one person with a gift. You'd make sure there were at least two of them. So it's possible that somebody came with him and then had to leave him when he was ill and went back to to, to, to uh, Philippi and told the church, Phew, I don't think you're going to see Epaphroditus again. Whew, when I left him, he was in a horrible condition. And that, of course, bothered Epaphroditus because he loved the, the, the people he was associated with. And though he was, he was almost at the point of death, he recovered, but he was still concerned about the people back at home. How would they feel about all of this? He thought the home church would be really worried. And he desperately wanted to go back there and see them and just assure them that all was well. And so he carried on serving Paul's needs. He was homesick. And so Paul says to the Philippians, look, look, I want to keep Timothy here. He is so important to me. He's my son. I'm his father, as far as Christian work is concerned. But I'm going to send him all the same. And if I can come after him, I will. But I just don't know how it's going to go with me. Not at the moment. It could be that uh, this is the end of my life. It could be that I get out again. If I can come to you, I will. But in the meantime, here's Timothy, because you need him. And simultaneously, Epaphroditus can't wait to see you again, so I'm sending him back as well. And Paul says several things about them, which I think uh, show us five challenges for what it looks like to really love one another and care for one another in a practical way, in the real world, in action. And I'm just going to go through these very, very quickly, ten minutes, and we'll be out of here, honestly. <laughs> (laughs) And the five challenges, two minutes each, are these. First of all, the challenge of awareness. Second, the challenge of empathy. Second, the challenge of unselfishness. Fourth, the challenge of excellence. And fifth, the challenge of initiative. Let me just go through those with you very quickly. First of all is the challenge of awareness. You know, when you look at this passage, it's amazing how many actions you find in it that have more than one impact. You know, more than one thing happens because, because these things happen. Uh, for example, uh, Paul wants to send Timothy to hit them because the Ephesians cheat him. But he says, if I do that, I'm also going to be cheered up because I'll get news of you as well. Two t- birds with one stone. <laughs> then there's Epaphroditus. Um, Paul is sending him back uh, and he's so glad that he didn't die because if he did die um, God had m- God would not have had mercy on him but God did have mercy on him and that's one one good thing that God's done but God has also had mercy on all as well because he says that would spare me sorrow upon sorrow uh, if Epaphroditus didn't die. And so God has shown mercy to Epaphroditus oh, and also to Paul as well. Again, two birds with one stone. And you can go on counting the stories through here. Two things for the price of one. And I think what Paul is trying to do is just make the point that things we do often have more than one impact. And we need to be aware of how what we do affects other people. I mean, look at Epaphroditus. They are sick in bed. the point of death and what's he thinking about oh this could be the end of my life no he's not what's he thinking about oh what are they going to make of this back in philippi they're going to be so discouraged and he's thinking about other people even while he's in that situation paul is so pleased to have Timothy with him but he knows that the philippians need him more than he does and so he sends he sends uh, uh, timothy to them awareness of how other people are and one of the, th- the things about love this is the first and the simplest lesson I think that you get from this passage is that you're thinking about other people and not yourself that's what Jesus does and that's what we've got to do too I had a, talk a couple of weeks ago to a, a parent whom I've known for a while uh, his children have been through my youth work and uh, he rang me and said I've got a problem I need to talk to you. Can we have coffee? So we arranged to meet together. And he said, listen, my son has just told me he's homosexual. How do I cope with this? And we talked about it. And he said, you know, I should have seen it coming a long time ago. I just didn't put the signs together. And when he told me, I I said to him, you, you know, you have always been able to talk to me about everything. Why couldn't you tell me about this? Oh, Dad, come on. You're the last person I could talk to. How often have we been sitting there on the sofa watching TV and you've been saying, oh, look at that program. Look, they've always got gays in it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's disgusting. turns your stomach, doesn't it? He said, the way you talk about what I have found myself to be means I could have never told you that. He said, it's the biggest kind of courageous thing I've done in my life to actually screw up my courage to tell you. And my friend just felt so rebuked by that. Because he had felt very close to his son, and yet he'd said and done things that had made his son think, it is impossible for me to talk to dad about this one subject. And we have to be so aware of one another, don't we? It's part of love. I'm glad to say that um, in the next few weeks, father and son are going off for a holiday together on their own, and they're just going to talk and talk and talk. Because sometimes it takes it, doesn't it? We're just not as aware as we ought to be of where the needs of people around us actually are. And sometimes they won't tell us because we seem so sorted and so fine and so buttoned up in their own little world. The challenge of awareness. And the second thing, it seems to me, is the challenge of empathy. You see, awareness, knowing what, how they're feeling and what's going on, that's one thing, but empathy means being ready to do something about the way that people feel. Feeling what they feel. Weeping when they weep. Rejoicing when they rejoice. Being there with them in it. And so often our emotional involvement with one another is so superficial. It's a case of, how are you doing? Fine. At the church door. And that doesn't get you very far at all, does it? If you look at the great figures of the Old Testament who had an impact on other people's lives, Often it was because they were able to feel as others felt. Remember Ezekiel at the start of his, his prophecy, when God gave him that incredible wearing commission that was going to take out years of his life? He went back to the people of Israel and he says, I sat where he sat. If he was going to bring God's message to a bunch of disillusioned and shattered Uh, exiles from their own country who didn't know what god was doing with them he had to be where they were there had to be that empathy look at the ending of the book of ezra ezra discovers shattering things about what the people have been doing they've taken on foreign wives they've compromised their their principles and what does ezra do does he go in and upbraid them and tell them they were wrong he doesn't he just sits down and starts crying (laughs) and that's enough he takes on himself all of the, 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 the bruised, uh, twisted, conflicted feelings that they're going through. The guilt and the shame that they're feeling. The way that they feel they have dishonored and let down God. The compromise that they've struggled with and given into, And he just cries. And at the end it's the people who come to him and say, what do we do? <laughs> that was all that was necessary. To feel as they, they felt. And this is what Paul's doing here, isn't it? And what the was so good at doing. He identified with his home church and he just wanted to be back there so that they wouldn't suffer too much from his absence. Timothy as well. Why am I sending you Timothy? Uh, Well, Paul says he's a a great preacher. No, he doesn't. Well, he's he's turning into quite a useful full-time worker. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about Timothy's abilities. He doesn't talk about Timothy's track record. He simply says, I have nobody who feels about you the way he does. And Timothy's command ended because he has the Philippians at heart. And that takes on to the third thing, the challenge of unselfishness, the challenge of being willing to give ourselves away. That's what Epaphroditus did, wasn't it? He didn't give up when he started feeling ill. He kept on going all the way to where Paul was in prison. He delivered that gift if it was the last thing he did, and it was almost the last thing he did do. And when he'd recovered, he stayed there to serve Paul. And uh, it was Paul who had to say to him, look, you go home, Epaphroditus. It's time you're back home with your friends. So the challenge of unselfishness, of not having our own personal agenda. Oh, we're going to have a final hymn, I see. But uh, yeah, a couple of minutes yet. Yeah. Okay, and then you can, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so unselfishness. And uh, Timothy's commended because he cares about the Philippians. And that was what Paul looked for, first and foremost. It wasn't a case of, oh, let's see what we got. Oh, look, he's doing nothing for the next couple of months. He could make an and back, no problem. Oh, Demas, oh, he's starting to get a bit concerned about this present world. Let's give him a job to do and take his mind off that. You know, it wasn't that. It was a case of who's the very best person we can send. And that takes us on to the fourth point. The fourth point is the challenge of excellence. And too often, we're prepared to accept second best, aren't we, in our Christian work in the things that we do for others, in the way that we care for them. How much time and effort and patience are we prepared to pour into others' lives in imitation of the way that Jesus poured himself out for us? That's what it comes down to. And uh, really telling ministry will be excellent ministry. I always think, I've probably told this story at Great Parks before because it's one of my favourites, but uh, I always think when I, when I hear that, that song, Bless the Lord, O my soul, of two people who were executed just seven years ago in Indonesia. Andrew Chan and Murian Sukumuran were drug smugglers. They were the leaders of the Bali Nine, the ringleaders of the group that were smuggling drugs out of Bali into Australia and destroying people's lives as a result. And when they were caught by the Indonesian government, the penalty was death. They spent ten years in jail then they were marched out and shot. But, you know, in that 10 years, something happened to both of them. Andrew Chan, who'd grown up next door to a Salvation Army captain, been friends with his family, had no interest in Christianity whatsoever, became a Christian, studied by correspondence to become a pastor, and became one of the most uh, powerful forces for good in the prison where he was. In fact, they used to send him out of the prison, under guard, obviously, to go into Indonesian schools, to talk about what he'd been involved in, and just don't touch drugs, kids. And whatever anybody says to you, just get involved in that trade. And he did fantastic good. And when the death sentence came through, nobody could believe it, because he was such a reformed character. And the prison officials protested about it. Sukumuran very similarly, became a Christian about the same time. And he wasn't a communicator like Andrew Chan, but he was a painter. And he painted an incredible series of pictures just to express his faith and show how Jesus Christ had changed his life. And so in the end, after all the appeals were exhausted, it was decided that they had to die. And early in the morning, while it was still dark, they were marched out of the prison across the road to the place where they were to be executed. And as they went across the road, they'd practiced this. uh, They they wanted to make sure that their, their last concert was a really good one. As they marched across the road, they started singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a age like me. When they sang that verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise. And when we first began, that really meant something that morning. And, but they reached it and they finished it. And Andrew Chan struck up another song. And one of the witnesses said she'd heard them singing this over the last few days again and again so they could get it right. Because they weren't exactly going to have hymn books, were they? And the song was, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And they never reached the last verse. In the middle of that second verse of the three, the guns roared out. 96 guns. Tremendous racket. There were 12 marksmen for each of the eight who were to die, and they died on the spot just like that. But, you know, uh, they went to their death, having left such a record of love and care, of an excellent kind behind them. People are still talking about them in Indonesia and Australia right now. And uh, what God does when he takes somebody's life and really fills it with his love, is he, he gives it a craving for excellence, for doing it right, for following in the footsteps of Jesus, for showing not some kind of superficial care because the rest of the church is watching, but for doing the very best you can because that's the way that Jesus did it. There's one more thing. I'm already over time, so let's just finish with this one. And that's the challenge of initiative. The great thing about Epaphroditus and Timothy was their flexibility. They were willing to stand in in all sorts of situations. And Paul says about Epaphroditus, you know, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. He filled up a gap. And sometimes there are situations that the official person can't cope with can't fulfill for some reason or another. And Epaphroditus and Timothy were good at standing in the gap. Timothy was somebody that Paul could always rely on to send out to stand in his place and to do things when he couldn't be there himself. That's why Timothy was the natural pick to send in the situation. Epaphroditus was somebody who, given a job, even if he was at the point of death, was going to carry on to the end. He was going to fill up the gap, whatever happened. And it's all too easy, isn't it, to get a sort of trade union mentality in Christian living. It's not my job, somebody else ought to do that, somebody ought to do that, but not me, it's not my job. And sometimes when we just lovingly hit one another, stand in for one another, do things we're not going to get any credit for, or people are not going to thank us for doing, but do them just because nobody else is doing them, and they need doing, and we're just helping and supporting somebody else in doing them. That is tremendous, isn't it? And that's another expression of the kind of love that Jesus showed. Jesus did things for us that we could never have done for ourselves. As Shakespeare put it, he who might the vantage best have took found out the remedy. (laughs) Jesus could have taken advantage of us, our situation as sinners. He didn't. He stepped in to help us in a way that we could never have helped ourselves. And so those things, it seems to me, all emerge from just those few verses. Paul wasn't dropping in something unnecessary here about travel plans and two guys that he, he kind of liked. He was saying to the Philippians instead, Here are two people you can really respect, because this is what they stand for. Now when Timothy comes to you, don't say, Oh, it's not the Apostle Paul after all. What a disappointment. It's only Timothy. Oh, come in, Timothy, we'll put the kettle on. And don't say, Epaphroditus, huh? Oh, we thought you weren't coming back. What did you spent all the money yourself? Oh, we heard you died. But obviously, that was that was a bit of an exaggeration. You're probably just having a fight. No, Paul wants them to know for sure. Epaphroditus has completed the job. He's done everything he was supposed to do and more. And he's risked his very life in doing so. And so he says to them, listen, when they get to you, you give them the credit they deserve. And not just those two, but honor men like them. Anybody who's in the same situation, give them that respect and honor. <laughs> Uh, I may have told this story too, just to finish with. But I remember when Louis Palau uh, was in Britain, the evangelist, to, to, to do a, a crusade once. Um, I was in Glasgow, uh, preaching in a church, and uh, this church had had Louis Palau uh, on his previous visit visit to Britain, and uh, they'd said to me, "Listen, um, we know you're down to take the evening service, but you know Louis doesn't come very often. Would do you mind if uh, we let him take the evening service?" And uh, I said, no, that's fine, that's great. And uh, Louis Palau got in touch with him and said, hey, John, we'll do it together. We'll share. And I thought, that's great. I didn't know him very well, but uh, I, I, I knew him a little bit. And he arrived about half an hour before we had to pray and then do the service. And so we were sitting in a stage room, one on our own for half an hour, just catching up with one another. And that was brilliant. And I have never seen so many people in a church Find an excuse just to Mr. door and say, Oh, oh, it's Lewis. Hello, Lewis. You'll not remember me, but you came to our house for tea. And all sorts of people just came because it was Lewis Palau, the great evangelist. And that's not what Paul wants to happen here. He doesn't want him to think Timothy's a substitute for Paul, inferior quality. There is no star status in Christianity. God has given some people massive gifts and other people small gifts. But we're all necessary. We all fit together and we can all show the initiative and the humility to work together and make the whole job get done. And we need not to count some people as more important than others, but simply look on everybody as an excuse for showing the love of Christ. That, I think, is what's happening in Philippians chapter 2 at this point. Ray, are are we coming back to you or am I just finishing it here?